Father, thanks for uh, this opportunity to get into your word this morning, to reflect on what your Son has done and what your Spirit is applying to us, the privilege that we have to be a part of your church to worship, um, to know your Son, to exalt Him, and to exalt in Him. Pray that this morning you would give us clarity of thought, um, give us great repentance and joy for your word, and pray that you'd be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Before I jump in, I want to jump in this morning to the issue of uh, biblical theology of worship. Um, if How many of you, because as we're looking at the church, one of the things I want to look at is worship. But And I'm, I'm going to do it somewhat as a biblical theological study, and then I'm going to jump back and do some... You guys know the difference, because I, I know I taught this in theological prolegomena and precipia, our first things when I was first beginning this class. So some of you guys don't know the distinction between biblical and systematic theology, but a biblical theology being this idea of, of diachronic study, which is, anybody know what the word diachronic? What, what do you think the word chronic means, or chronos? comes from the word chronos. Time. And dia is this idea of through time. So a diachronic study is through time. So if I start in Genesis, and I walk through the storyline of the Bible, um, in a temporal sense, I let it unfold through time. You follow me on that? So the, the revelation of God increasingly progresses so that it gets clearer and clearer um, until it you know, obviously hits its high point in Jesus. You guys follow me on that? Um, that's, that's a biblical theological approach. Systematic theology is when you take all of your biblical theology, exegesis, etc., and, and then you make application, if you will. You answer the questions people then have, which are synchronic. In other words, the with time questions. Who's God? Okay, well now it doesn't really matter that I go from Genesis and order through Revelation. i got to take all the data across the Bible and bring that together. You follow me on that? And so what I'm going to do is spend <coughs> this morning more on a sort of diachronic approach, but I'm just going to keep... So I'm going to go through time on worship with regard to what is worship and how do we approach that as a church. But I'm going to make some systematic theology applications as we go through. Okay, So I'll make that clear. But um, how, let me start off by asking this. How many of you guys have seen um, the study that was done by Lifeway, which is a Southern Baptist um, organization, as well as Ligonier? In other words, Ligonier Ministries, which is R.C. Sproul's ministry, and Lifeway did a study, commissioned a study together. You guys, have you guys seen that? The state of theology in the U.S.? Um, I encourage you to pick that up. Um, the State of Theology in the U.S., either they, they, it's actually a very well done survey. Al Mohler on the briefing talks about it this morning um, to some degree. If you guys ever listen to Al Mohler's The Briefing, um, if you don't, you should. That's something you should listen to. Turn off Fox News, turn off talk radio, listen to The Briefing by Al Mohler. You'll, it's fantastic. And you'll be done in like 15, 20 minutes with all your news. You don't have to. And waste your time on the internet all day looking at stuff, podcast. okay? So, yes. what's that? Is it in a podcast form, iTunes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the briefing, yeah. Um, but it's, 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 he's going after all the news events from a Christian worldview. Anyway, he discusses it today. Um, he also discusses the Sixth Circuit um, Court of Appeals uh, decision, but um, with regard to gay marriage today. But the, uh, the, the State of Theology Study, I'd encourage you to go get it and read it. You can download it. You can go to Ligonier and get it. Um, but I, I want to I hit on a couple things that are relevant to today. 
to what we're doing as far as the doctrine of the church. There's stuff here on the doctrine of God. There's stuff here on the doctrine of man and sin. There's stuff here on heaven and hell, on the doctrine of salvation, um, you know, on ethics. There's, there are questions on all those things that are very, very helpful um, and to some extent sad. But I wanted to talk about one, which is the worshiping alone. They have a little category called worshiping alone on there. And they, they ask questions. So they asked, they surveyed 3,000 people, and they, they disaggregated Protestant evangelicals from average Americans. You guys follow me on that? So they did both a study of sort of what's the average American response, using Protestant evangelicals, mixing them into that. So they have a, as much of a, rep, a good representation as they could across the board. What's the average American? And then they disaggregated the Protestant evangelicals from that and said, what do Protestant evangelicals say about that? Let's find out the condition of Protestant evangelicalism, because that's, that's a very specific group, right? Okay. Um, interestingly enough, listen to this. Wor speaking of worship, worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. You hear that? So they give this statement and they ask, do you agree or do you disagree? Agree or disagree? Worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. Now, this is just the general American public. 52% agree with that statement. General American public. 38% um, disagree. What's interesting and probably most sad to me is 30% of evangelical Protestants agree that worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. Right. Um, okay. My local ch church, check this out. I think I talked about this a little bit last week. My local church has the authority to declare that I'm not a Christian. Okay, that's the statement. Do you agree or not agree? My local church has the authority to declare that I'm not a Christian. Now, of course, in Matthew 18, Jesus expressly gives the local church that authority. Um, but what's interesting is 8% of Americans agree. 8% of Americans agree. Local church can do that. 82% disagree. Here's the amazing thing. General American population, 8% agree with that statement. Of evangelical Protestants, only 7% agree. Okay? That means the average American has a better doctrine of the church in that regard than the average evangelical Protestants. All right. My pastor's sermons are not authoritative over my life. My pastor's sermons are not authoritative over my life. Now, there's one sense in which everyone would disagree. The pastor's sermon all by itself, if it's not biblical, in other words, not biblically, it, it would have no authority. But in as, in a, in as much as it's biblical, Jesus, 56% of people agree that it's not authoritative over my life. Okay, 56% of Americans... Of evangelical Protestants, 41% of evangelical Protestants agree their pastor's sermon has no authority in their lives. 41%. Um, or if you go back to the history of Christianity, there's little value in studying and or reciting creeds and catechisms. Little value in, in other words, little value in studying and or reciting creeds and catechisms. In other words, going back to how the history is thought, the church has thought about doctrine. Little value. 27% of Americans agree there's little value, which I was surprised that only 27% agree there's little value. What's 
Fascinating is 31% of evangelical Protestants agree there's little value. Um, I, I cite that just because I, I realized as I went through this, we have a really unfortunate understanding of the church. Um, it, what This report probably demonstrated more than anything, if you go and look at it, these are just the front some of the front-loaded statistics, but if you go and pull the white paper and read through it, which I encourage you to do, is that we are theologically confused. Evangelical Protestants are probably as theologically confused, if not more, than the average American. Um, it's a very sad state. We're theologically confused because um, we're not being taught the Bible, and we're just imbibing the culture. Um, but we're syncretizing those two things. Is there a syncretism? Okay, where you take one worldview and another, and you smash them together. So you take Christianity, and you syncretize it with the spirit of the age. You get this kind of bizarre third thing, right? And that's what's happening. I, it's, it's easy for us to beat up on um, the rest of the world for participating in syncretism, because they are. But we don't tend to pay att much attention to all the secretism happening in America, which it's abundant. All right, okay, just, just as a side note, just as a setup, that's why we've been spending so much time on the doctrine of the church, um, on systematic theology in general, but on the doctrine of the church in the specific, in this last several weeks, because we, we don't want to have a jacked-up view of what God is doing. So let's talk about worship. Um... Let's start in Genesis 1, because I want to start at the beginning with regard to worship, uh, and let's, let's start there. Genesis chapter 1, and, I, and I'm going to skip a lot of stuff, but because I don't have time to read to you the entire Bible today, so I'm just going to jump through some various things. You have to be patient with me as I make selections as I go through here, but in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, I, I just want to start there. Whenever we start talking about worship, we need to start with this very important declarative statement at the beginning of the Bible. I will tell you, every other problem you have with the Bible begins with the failure to believe Genesis 1.1. Once you, once you get a hold of and believe Genesis 1-1, the rest of the Bible becomes pretty easy to believe. Uh, parting the Red Sea. Oh, that's really hard to believe that God parted the Red Sea. But if he created the heavens and the earth, it is not so difficult to get a hold of. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Uh, this, this, this is important because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which means God existed prior to them. He is a non-contingent, eternal being. He was there and he spoke these things into existence. And he spoke them into existence for his own glory. Now look look down at, um, and by the way, Psalm 19 is clear about that. So if you want to know that Genesis 1 is tied to Psalm 19 with the idea that God has done all this for his own glory. Okay, and I don't have time to go through Psalm 19 today, but that's where you can find more on that. But look down here, we'll start to see that developed, even in the way as he ordered the earth, as he, if you will, the first three days, he's creating all of these things, and then the next three days, he's essentially uh, filling. So if he's sort of creating this space, and then he's filling 
right? And he's ordering all of this until he gets to this point where he <coughs> makes this one who will glorify him above all else. Then God said, verse 26, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So, how many of you guys, when he says, let us create us in his own image? Now, I don't, I don't want to get into a whole biblical theology of what does it mean to be in the image of God. I, I just want to ask a very simple question. How do pagan cultures make images of their gods? What do they do? They use creation. Okay, so that, but what do they do? If you go to India, how would you find an image of a god? Statue of an elephant. Okay, so you find a statue of an elephant. Here's an image of our God. They make an image to represent their God, to give you a picture of him, right? What what did God make? Man. To give an image of himself. That's why, incidentally, we, we don't make any images like the pagan nations do. God makes the images. Okay? And... That doesn't mean we worship man. It just means man is in some way representational of him. You guys follow me on that? Okay. So if you think about this, God that creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And as they're fruitful and multiply, and they spread across the earth, what's spreading across the earth? The image of God. The image of God. So if you're, if you're coming into a, a location, and... This is what happened to me when I went to India the first time. You're coming into India, and I'm coming into a city, and as I'm coming in right at the ex- external part of this one city, I see these, these big statues representing particular Hindu gods. What, what's being announced to me as I enter the city is what? <clears throat> Essentially, in, in, at least at some point in this city's history, probably not contemporarily, but at some point in this history, city's history, they worshipped this god. You guys follow? Okay. Um, but whether they do now or not, I don't know. Where the city I was in. But my point is, is that as Adam and Eve are spreading across the earth, the image of God. In other words, there's there's a there's an announcement being made. In as much as they're properly reflecting through their progeny, properly reflecting the glory and character of God, there's an announcement made of who rules. You guys follow that? Everywhere man goes, an announcement is being made to creation. That the Lord rules. That's part of the problem with the fall is that we no longer properly reflect the image of God. We reflect a lie. right? Rather than mirroring to the world, here's the character of God, we now mirror to the world, here's the character of Satan. Okay? Um, Alright, so, so he goes on, he blesses them. Now I want to look at chapter 2, and I want to see this a little bit as it's played out. Um, you see a much more focused chapter in chapter 2 and you see some interesting some interesting things coming in here look at verse um, 4 these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist 
was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. That's the Ruach, the spirit. So he's breathed in and he's this life-giving spirit. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree. He's going off, and then notice you go down, there's a tree of life which was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So you have the, the Pishon, the, the Havilah, you know, and he goes on, the Gihon, the, and Cush, and then he goes on, the, the excuse me, um, and Tigris, all right? So there's Pishon coming out of this area of Havilah, watering this area of Havilah, then Gihon, Cush, and Tigris, um, or, sorry, Gihon is in Cush. The third river is Tigris in Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. Now notice the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Why? He's created this garden. He's created this entire cosmos, if you will. And he's created this garden, and you have these trees, and you have these four rivers. Um, and you, you have what? Then the Lord puts the man in the garden to work it and keep it. What's he, why? <clears throat> Is there some work God needs done? And any any guesses as to that? Well, I think I'm guessing it, it comes down to the fact that he's made in God's image, so he's continuing to bring order out of chaos. Yeah, so he's he's working. What's interesting here is um, we. So, scholars are beginning to argue, and I think, or not beginning to, we have argued and continue to lay out arguments I think that are quite compelling. The kind of work that you're seeing Adam do here is priestly work. In other words, what you're seeing here is God creating a sort of a cosmic temple. Um, and in microcosm here in the garden, and Adam is really doing priestly work. Um, there's no weeding. Now, he's also given a kingly sort of job, too, isn't he? Having dominion over, um, etc. But the Lord God took, verse 15, the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Um, and, uh, by the way, that word keep it is, is what he's kicked out of doing, incidentally, when you get down to Genesis chapter 3. Um, when you get down to Genesis chapter 3, and it says that the cherubim, verse 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, now the, 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 the garden is being guarded in the Hebrew, the same word that Adam is supposed to keep it. Um, in other words, it was supposed to be Adam, in a sense, keeping the garden. And now it's these cherubim keeping it. Um, it's quite interesting. But it goes on. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it, uh, that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so he creates all these beasts, and he creates this woman, brings her to him, and the two come, become one flesh. And we know some of that story. But if you will, we're, we're created... If I, if I will, at the first point here in the first two chapters, and I don't have time to drive into all of it, but I want you to notice this tree of life is there. Okay, It's a tree they're not supposed to eat from. Um, that, and in some way, Adam has some kind of work 
and it looks to be a kind of priestly working or keeping of God's, if, if you will, cosmic temple or garden, this place where his um, image is being properly reflected and his name is being glorified to all of creation. And this man is supposed to, and he's not only commanded to do that, but he's commanded to do what? Be fruitful and multiply and spread across the earth, right? Um, in other words, it's like as if the boundaries of the garden are supposed to spread across the earth. I'm not exactly sure how that looks, but that's what he's commanded to do. Okay? So we're created for the worship of the Creator, and, and it seems to say as priests of the covenant Lord in his garden temple. Now, why do I say the covenant Lord in his garden temple? Because in all through Genesis 1, we have this word Elohim, which is the plural of majesty. It's a, it's a plural word for God, but it's a plural of majesty. And they're saying God is majestic, this majestic God who creates. But then in chapter 2, we get to this word for Lord, which is all caps in your Bible, L-O-R-D, all caps, is the word Yahweh, which is his covenant name. And then he puts them in his garden, seems to make this covenant with him, and the covenant has certain stipulations. Eat this, and you die. Don't eat of it, and I'll let you eat of the tree of life. You guys follow that? Okay. Work the garden. Here's your bride. Etc. And he, he's... They're working this covenant, this, this sorry, garden temple, um, and they're commanded to spread the garden temple across the earth. Isn't that interesting? Be fruitful, multiply, and you're supposed to spread this thing. Um, however, that's so. That's the first point. If I if I could if I could sum up Genesis one and two without spending hours trying to defend it, if I could sum up Genesis one and two, say we're created for worship of the Creator as priests of the covenant Lord in his garden temple. And we're commanded to spread that garden temple across the earth. Okay, So when you get to the Great Commission, this command to spread the glory of God across the earth is not new. It starts in the pattern of creation, even before the fall. I want you to follow that. Even before the fall into sin, Adam and Eve were supposed to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the entire earth. For the glory of God. You just follow that? Okay. Alright. Two. Um, if, if I give you a second one, I'm going to jump into Genesis 3. I'm going to tell you my supposition or my, my argument right at the beginning. We became, instead of worshippers of the Creator, priests of the Covenant Lord in the Garden Temple, spreading the Garden Temple across the earth, instead of that, we became worshippers of the creature. Okay. Thus, under the covenant curse. In other words, what does God tell them the covenant curses in chapter 2? If you eat of it, what will happen? You will die. So the covenant curse kicked out of the garden, of te uh, the garden temple. Look at Genesis chapter 3. All right. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Essentially, Satan challenges the word of God. That's what he always does. That is the primary challenge of Satan throughout human history, don't believe what God says. God's word can't be trusted. That is predominant all the way through. Okay? Um, that's what he still does. 
The primary activity of Satan is not to come and shake the dishes in your cupboards and scare you at night. Okay? <laughs> the primary activity of Satan is to, is to convince you that God's word can't be trusted. All right. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the, trees, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made lo themselves loincloths. In other words, they're afraid. And they heard the sound, and shamed, shamed. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. In spite of the fact that a pastor in town loves, a very well-known pastor in town, loves to talk about the fact that the problem is that God hid himself from us, that is not what the Bible says. Adam and Eve went and hid themselves from God. Yeah, you just have to, if you want reference to the sermon, I'll tell you sometime. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And this is the beginning of blame shifting. <laughs> then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, so Satan made me do it. All right. Now look, um, go on to verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock. So notice the curse is coming. He starts to curse the serpent. Now look, then he curses the woman, verse 16. To the woman he said, I'll come back to verse 15 in a minute, but to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Okay, and he goes on at the last phrase to the woman at the end of verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Which has a parallel in Genesis chapter 4 to sin is crouching at your door, it desires to have you, but you must master it. In other words, there is this sense in which she's being told, that childbearing, which was supposed to be natural and God-glorifying and good for you, is now going to be painful and difficult. Right? So there's a... there's And even infants die. And, you know, they think about all the things that come now, okay? Also, your marriage is going to fall... is going to be difficult. It's not going to be easy. You're going to have... You're going to desire to conquer your husband. He's going to desire to conquer you. Both things are bad. You guys follow that? Okay? Relationships are going to be messed up in general, in other words. Um, not just between husband and wife, but all relationships. And to Adam, now he curses Adam. And he said to him, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground even because of you. And pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. What was Adam supposed to do? Work the garden. What's happening to him now? The work is going to be frustrating. By the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Alright, so, so this idea is, is that Adam and Eve had turned from the covenant Lord, and they're under his curse. Now what's interesting is, what do they turn to worship? I said they've turned to worship the creature rather than the creator. Look at Romans chapter 1, because Paul gives us a summary statement of essentially what's gone down here and in all of mankind. Um, as a result of this, this is where we start to say scripture interprets scripture. Progressive revelation, further revelation helps us understand prior revelation, right? 
verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What does it mean? What does he mean by suppressing the truth? Um, the, the Greek word there is sort of like this idea that you stand over something and you push it down. Like I put myself above this thing and now I'm pushing it down and making it shut up. You follow? And essentially what he's saying is that the tendency of humanity in unrighteousness is to basically take God's word, the truth, and to push it down. To put themselves, exalt themselves above it and, and, and make it submit to them. You see that problem existing? Okay. Anyway. All right. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, notice that important word, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, what did they start worshipping? Creation. Creation. Therefore God gave them up. And this is how the wrath of God, in verse 18, when he says the wrath of God is present tense revealed, this isn't talking about the future wrath of God against sin, which is coming. This is talking about the present tense revelation of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is currently revealed. We see it. How do we see it? Verse 24, therefore God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up. Verse 28, the second phrase, God gave them up. You guys notice that? Okay, he's giving them up to their sin. So we're not waiting for the wrath of God to come to America. It's already here. Okay. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Remember what I said? Satan told them you cannot believe God. He's the liar. Don't believe God's word. For a lie. And worshipped and served the creature. Rather than the creator. Who is blessed forever. Amen. Okay. You guys, you guys follow the problem here? Alright. So. We became worshippers of the creature. Rather than the creator. Thus the covenant Lord kicked us out of the garden, put us under the covenantal curse, which is death and all of its corresponding attributes, i.e. pain and childbearing, broken relationships, work that is frustrating. Right? You guys experience all these things, right? What's interesting about that is you experience the glorious moments of good relationships, real intimacy and good relationships, and you also experience the brokenness of that. That you were meant to experience the glorious part of it all the time without ever having any of the sin and brokenness. You follow me on that? Okay? You experience the glorious part of work where you really enjoy your labor, and you experience the frustrating part of that. You guys, you guys follow that? Um, you weren't supposed to ever experience the frustrating part of it. You're supposed to just enjoy it. But you do because of sin. It's the way it is. Right? Um, experience the glorious part of childbearing and birth, and you experience the very painful part of that. Okay? 
and on and on it goes. The goodness of life and the taste of death. We experience all of it. You follow me? Suffering, pain, and death. Because of the curse that we're under. Because we didn't worship the Creator. Why am I making this point? Because this Lord not only creates, He makes a covenant with us as His worshipers, in a sense as priests in His garden temple, commanded to spread His glory across the earth. We failed to do that. Now we're under His curse. Because we worship the Creator. I mean, excuse me, the creature, rather than the Creator. Okay? Sorry about that. That's a big mess up. All right, number three. <laughs> number three. Here, here's what the third point I'm going to make. The covenant Lord <clears throat> promised to return to us the blessings of being His worshipers. Okay? He promised to return to us the blessing of being His worshipers, bringing us back to the Garden Temple. Okay? Which I'm going to argue to you, the bringing us back to the Garden Temple is first typed, or we see the first picture of it, in the Promised Land or Palestine. And, and, and I'm going to argue that in a second. But look at chapter 3, because I want, to see, I want you to see this promise to return to us, the blessings of being his worshipers. Genesis chapter 3, thank you, Chris. And verse 15, as he's cursing the serpent... Genesis 3.15, we have this promise in the midst of the curse. I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that's her offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, who does the New Testament tell us this is about? Jesus, expressly. The New Testament, on more than one occasion, picks up the language from this text and says, this is what Jesus does. And not only does this is what Jesus does, but he says, even all those in him, when Paul makes the comment in Romans, that there's a day coming when the Lord will crush Satan under your feet. In other words, the feet of the church. Not just under the feet of Jesus, but even the feet of his people. Right? Um, but as you, as you look at that, there's this promise that this one is coming. His heel will be struck. And, but he will crush the head of Satan in the process. Right? And we know this is talking now with further revelation about the crucifixion. Okay? We do know that Adam and Eve understood that there's this Messiah coming, bringing them life from the woman. We, we, we know that they're looking forward to this coming Messiah, bringing them life, because the first thing Adam does in verse 20 coming out of the curse is to call his wife's name Eve. Why? Because she before this she was Esha, woman. Now she's Eve. Why? Because she is the mother of all living. In other words, Adam's believing the promise. And then it goes down, when they, have, when they give birth to Cain, Eve immediately thinks this is the one. Now Adam knew his wife, is Eve his wife, and she conceived more Cain, saying, and here's what Eve immediately knows, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. In other words, here he comes. Cain is quite the opposite of what she was hoping for. <laughs> right. Um, now, what I want you to notice is there are five curses. That this idea of cursing is stated five times in Genesis 3. Now, I want you to go to Genesis 12 because there's an interesting thing that happens here. As we know the story progresses, we come to Abraham. In other words, this seed of the woman is going to come through humanity. And now it gets narrowed down from humanity to a particular nation. 
which is in the nation that comes from Abraham's loins. You follow me on that? Okay, so it gets narrowed down from all of humanity, from the woman, to a particular nation, which is who is Abraham here. Um, well, Israel's the nation, but coming from Abraham. So look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, which at this point his name just means exalted father. Lately, Later it's changed to Abraham, which is father of a multitude or na a multitude of nations. Now the Lord said to Abraham, or Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He's calling Abram out, who at this time is likely some kind of a pagan, and the Lord comes and calls him out. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will, now notice this, I will bless you, one, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, two, I will bless those who, three, who bless you, four, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Five. Five times the word blessing is used in response to the five curses in Genesis 3. What do you think is happening there? Reversal. It's the beginning of a reversal of this curse. All right? And it's going to come in this seed who comes from Abraham. Right? The reversal of that curse. And that is forward in Genesis 15, the understanding of that, in Genesis 17, and they're going to this land. What's interesting is the land they come to is marked out pretty much by the same geographical boundaries and rivers as, as, the land, as the, what you see in the garden. And it seems to be that there's this sense in which they're God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. They're, they sin, they're no longer God's people in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. And now God comes to save them and says, I'm going to make, I, once again, you will be my people. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. I will take you to my place, this land I'm going to give you, and I will put you under my, and there you are under my rule and blessing. You guys follow? Now, is the ultimate salvation found in Abraham and the covenant made with Abraham specifically? No, it's found in the new covenant in Christ, but this begins that build to, this, to, to the coming of the Christ. You guys follow me? If you will, it's the building up and to some extent the narrowing of the promise because it's very generic coming from the woman. And now it's starting to narrow to this nation. Then if you go to Genesis, for example, 40, 48 and 49, when, when Jacob starts to bless his sons, he actually narrows it to the tribe of Judah. So he goes from, from the woman to the nation of Israel to the tribe of Judah as he starts to narrow it. And they come, they come in. So if you will, the Lord promised to return us to us the blessings of being his worshipers, bringing us back to the garden temple which in this case is, is in Palestine. And what's interesting is when they design the tabernacle, Israel does, on the instructions they're given in Exodus, they design the tabernacle and then eventually the temple, the decorations, the way it looks internally, is very much mirroring the elements of the garden. There's a whole study done on this, incidentally. It's called the um, Biblical Theology of the Temple by G.K. Beale. Probably the preeminent biblical theologian today living, and he did a. And actually, you're in luck because next September, G.K. Beale is coming to Bakersfield and he's going to be teaching a, on the biblical theology of the temple. He's going to lay out from Genesis through Revelation. So you should go on our website and sign up for that conference. All right, just, just, as, just as, a, as a forefront. He's going to be coming and talking about that. Um, this idea is that the tabernacle and the temple have all these elements that mirror the garden. 
They have these priests working in there, like Adam was supposed to. All right, so I'm going to keep going. Fourth assertion. The covenant Lord established regulations for worship of himself among his covenant people in their daily living and in their corporate gatherings. So not only does he start to build this nation, but we see him establish regulations for worship of himself. Where do we see those? We see them largely laid down in the Mosaic Covenant. We see pictures of them in the Abrahamic Covenant, but we see them very specifically laid down in the Mosaic Covenant, don't we? Okay, They're practicing a lot of them already before the Mosaic Covenant. They're already doing sacrifices. They're already, But we see very specific, detailed picture of them in the Mosaic Covenant as he establishes relation, re- regulations for worship of himself among his covenant people in their daily living and in their corporate gatherings. Okay? So both he establishes regulations for how they worship daily and how they worship corporately. You guys follow me on that? He, he regulates both. Look at Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Now, what, what's the... Let me give you a little context for this. Prior to Moses bringing down the Ten Commandments, he's at Mount Sinai. And there's this interesting thing stated by the Lord in verse 5 of chapter 19, where he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of what? Priests. And a holy nation. Now, he says that all of Israel is to be a kingdom of priests. But then he establishes specific priests, doesn't he? It's interesting, in a holy nation. And we'll tease that out a little bit more later. But as he's given this kingdom of priests regulations for worship (laughs) of himself in their daily lives and corporate gatherings, the first commandment he gives them is what? Verse 3 of chapter 20. You should know this. If you can name 10 beers, you should be able to name the 10 commandments. I'm just going to tell you that right now. But everybody in the room can name 10 beers, and nobody can name 10 commandments, okay? That is a problem. If you can name 10 restaurants and not 10 commandments, change your priorities, okay? So, what's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. What's the second commandment? Yeah, okay. You shall not make any idols is a summary, but you shall not make yourself any graven images, etc., etc. That sounds like, don't have any other God before me. By the way, the word before me means in my presence. It doesn't mean like you can you worship me and then you can worship your children and then you can worship your wife. And, okay, I'm first. It means before me, in my presence. And where is he? Everywhere. So there's no other gods. Just me. Okay, that's I'm all you're allowed to have. And then the second commandment, don't have any idols or make any idols. How are those two commandments different? One worships the creator, one worships the creature. So they're making sure that both of them are. Yeah, that's true. But how are? The, but don't worship the creature. Sounds a lot. Sounds a lot like only worship me, right? It's the what and the how, right? Okay, good. it's the who and the how. First, well, these are not. These are not. God isn't just being redundant. Okay, <coughs> who I alone am worshipped. How you don't worship me like pagans worship their gods. You don't make graven images. 
That's how the pagan nations all around them worshipped their gods. They made idols. You don't worship me that way. You guys follow? Okay. In other words, God's saying, I determine who gets worshipped, and I determine how he gets worshipped. I want that to be very clear. He's very detailed in how he gets worshipped, and throughout the rest of pretty much the book of Exodus, and the entire book of Leviticus. You read the book, book of Leviticus, you're going, my gosh, this is a ton of detail. But God is saying, listen, I'm holy, and this is how I'll be worshipped. You don't get to choose how you worship me. And I want you to stop and think of that in a day and age of, of spontaneity, spontaneity and individuality in which we think we determine how God is worshipped based upon our own preferences. And he's a God who says, I'm God, and I tell you how to worship me. Right? He has a right to do that, doesn't he? If he's the only God, then he's the only one who has a right to tell us how to worship him. Okay, there's a systematic theology conclusion. Follow? Okay, all right, now, go to, um, I, I want to I make this um, even clearer. The covenant Lord recorded, this is my fifth proposition, if the fourth one was the covenant Lord established regulations for worship of himself among his covenant people in their daily living and their corporate gatherings, uh, that's true, calling them a nation of priests, which he does, by the way, if you look at the Ten Commandments, and if you look at what follows in this, co in this covenant he makes, he doesn't just talk about their corporate gatherings, he does talk about their individual lives. Like, on a daily basis, you're not allowed to lust after your neighbor's wife. Okay? On a daily basis, you're not allowed to do that. Right? That's not just in corporate worship, but that's true. That's true daily. But there are all these regulations he gives to corporate worship as well. All right. Fifth. Here's the fifth proposition. The covenant Lord recorded his requirements for his worship in his book. You hear that? I'm just expanding on what I just said. The covenant Lord recorded his requirements for his worship in his book. Look at Deuteronomy 29.29. Uh, I'm going to have to start speeding up now. All right, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, that's Yahweh, the covenant Lord, that's his covenant name, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may, we may do all the words of this law. So let, let me ask you first of all, what are we supposed to do? What, what is that verse saying supposed to do at the end? We're supposed to do all the words of the law, right? That's what we're supposed to do. So do all the words of the law. Now before that, he makes this phrase, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. What grammatically are the things that are revealed? According to this text, that there's these things that are revealed that belong to us, that we may do all the what? Words of the law. So what are the things that are revealed? The words of the law. He's talking about the first five books of the Bible here, right? Now, by extension, we know that God has given us more words. Okay? The things that are revealed. Here they are. All Scripture is God-breathed. Right? So, the things that are revealed. They belong to us. So that we may do them. So what belongs to us? This. So that we may do it. This is what we have. Things are revealed. What does not belong to us? Secret things. The secret things. What do you spend most of your time trying to figure out? Secret 
Secret base. <laughs> again, a priority shift. What ought you to spend most of your time trying to figure out? The things that are revealed. Okay, you guys understand that? Why is the Lord doing this? I don't know. Read your Bible. Stop trying to figure it out. Read your Bible. Okay, you guys follow me on that? All right. It's, it's the the Lord told us what He gave us. He gave us this. We spend so much time trying to figure out everything else rather than just figuring out what he gave us, what belongs to us. Okay? What's interesting about that is these are his words that we may do them. In other words, the covenant Lord recorded his requirements for his worship in his book. They're right here. How do we know how to worship the Lord? Because he told us in his book. I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to get a new word or a fresh word. In fact, I don't want any new or fresh words. I just want to declare to you right now, I never, ever, ever in my life ever want God to speak to me individually and give me a new or fresh revelation. You want to know why? Because I have a hard enough time understanding and keeping all the ones he's already given me. I, I, and I'll tell you this, if you haven't read the whole Bible... You have no right to ask God for some new information. You look at you going like, listen, I gave you a ton of stuff. You don't pay any attention to any of it already. It's the truth. Can you imagine the insult? You sit down and your wife just pours her heart out to you. And then you look at her and say, I, I'd like to hear something from you. What? I just poured my heart out to you. Did you not listen to me? No, I checked out. What do you have to say now? That's essentially what we do to the Lord all the time. We don't pay any attention to all the things he did say, looking for something new for him to say to us. And what I'm telling you is, I never want him to speak anything new to me because I'm still just trying to wrap my brain around what he already said. All right, verse 9 of Psalm 119, I want you to hear this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes and I'll never forget your word. You hear all the synonyms he's using for the recorded revelation we have? How does a young man keep his way pure? In other words, how does a young man worship? according to his word. Just follow? All right. Sixth proposition. The covenant Lord required holy observance of his regulations for worship among his covenant people. Hear that? The covenant Lord required holy observance of his regulations, which he recorded in his word for worship among his covenant people. Required it for worship among them. This is part of our problem, incidentally. Can we keep, can we fulfill the requirement of holy observance of his regulations for worship? No, that's part of our problem, right? That's why we look forward to the one who did keep the requirements. You guys follow? Okay. All right. But I, I want you to look at a passage just so we can see that this, ma this matter of God commands how he's worshipped and you don't get to veer from it how serious he is about it. Look at Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. 
Now Nadab, verse 1, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, now these are, notice Aaron's sons are supposed to be priests, right? So they, they get to lead worship. They're worship leaders. You hear this if you're a worship leader in here, right? Which, i.e. a pastor or a musician who's participating in part of worship leading. Um, pay attention. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Now, now, which he had not commanded them. Now, I want you to follow that. It doesn't say, which he commanded against doing. You guys follow that? They didn't offer fire. He didn't say, this fire you shall not offer. This is, in other words, they're not breaking an explicit command in the sense of, some fire, God said, don't ever offer that fire. What they're doing is they're saying, we're going to add to what the Lord has given us to do. He's given us commands. We're going to simply add to the commands. We're priests. We think this is a good idea. We're going to offer some extra fire the Lord didn't require. In other words, you're offering fire I never asked you to offer me. That's why it's called strange fire, right? Or unauthorized fire, okay? He never authorized them to offer it. Think about that. Nadab and Abihu are coming before the Lord in an attempt to worship him on their own terms. In other words, they actually think they're adding it up. The Lord required us to do all this. Now we're going to add this to it too. Man, the Lord is going to be really pleased with us. Verse 2. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. <laughs> then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who, those who are near me, I will be <coughs> sanctified, holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So what, what does the Lord do? You want to play with fire? <laughs> you guys, you guys. All right, here's the thing. You don't get to add to how you worship me. I will be holy before my people. And God considers, God, notice this, God considers it an affront to his holiness when his people think they have the right to determine how they worship him. Serious. Serious enough to kill two priests over it. <coughs> Yet we're running around in the contemporary church acting like we can do whatever that we want on Sunday morning as long as we feel good about it. Never ever asking the question, did God ever command me to do this in worship? Did God ever command his people to do this in worship? Never asking that question, we're just going to do it. I'm just going to tell you guys, you're playing with the holy God there. Right? You don't have a right to determine how he gets worshipped. He does. He does. All right. Um, the covenant Lord's mission, I, wa I want you to hear this as we go on, because we're going to push into that um, a little bit more. In fact, I'm, I'm about to run out of time, so I'm going to end with this. The covenant Lord's mission, seventh supposition or proposition, the covenant Lord's mission was to spread his worship throughout all nations building them into a holy temple. Okay? 
In other words, I am just I, I want you to notice this because it's this an important point. I'm tying mission to worship. So when I said I'm going to do the worship of the church and the mission of the church, I'm going to finish with this one today and then come back because I have um, six more propositions after this. All right. So I want to come back next week, but I want you to understand this. I'm tying mission to worship. And I'm tying mission to worship on purpose. Mission is supposed to come out of worship and it's supposed to be for the purpose of promoting worship. You follow me on that? It's incredibly important to understand that. Once you divide worship and mission, you know what you get? Good works devoid of the gospel. It's what you get. You get ethics without theology. In other words, um, you essentially get Godless good works. Go out and do whatever you whatever's nice for people. Um, you guys follow me on that? You get man-centeredness is what you get. Uh, mission is supposed to spring out of worship and be for the purpose of promoting more worship. Why? What was God on mission to do in creating man? Bring about his worship. What was man originally in the garden supposed to be on mission to do even before the fall? Spread the worship of God across the earth. Even before the fall. I want you to catch that because usually we're sitting around going, oh, you know what? The reason for missions is because of the fall and people need salvation. That's true. But mission is first grounded in the fact that God wants his name glorified across the earth. So that the salvation of man is not the preeminent reason that we do missions. It is the, if you will, penultimate reason we do missions. The ultimate reason we do missions is the glory of God. The penultimate reason for that is, or the, the reason that serves that ultimate mission is the salvation of men, because until men are saved, they will not glorify God. You guys follow me on that? So that Paul can say, we've received grace and apostleship, Romans 1.5, to bring about the obedience of faith among all ethnes. Ethnic groups, nations. It doesn't mean geopolitical states. He means ethnic groups, among all ethnes, for the sake of his name. In other words, that's the preeminent goal of it, that he would, his name would be exalted or glorified. You guys follow me on that? And so the covenant Lord, the covenant Lord's mission was to spread his worship throughout all nations, building them into a holy temple. I, I want you to catch that because it's important. He, he wants to build all nations into a holy temple to himself, doesn't he? So, so that you see in Genesis 2, 1 and 2, the command to spread the glory of God across the earth. You see in Genesis 12, the command or, or the promise that the glory of God will be spread where? Across the earth. Because the seed of Abraham will bless all nations. Okay, And you see as you walk through the Old Testament, this promise continuing to build that all the world will worship his name. All, Psalm 67 being the preeminent psalm in that regard, um, I would encourage you to read. Um, but then you get to something like John 4.24, or 4, sorry, I'm just not going to say, John chapter 4, verse 20 and following particularly, but where what, Jesus has this conversation with the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, and what does he say he's looking for? What's the Lord looking for? Worshippers. What he's looking for. Jesus came to seek and save the lost so that God would have what? 
Worshippers. Why did he create? So he'd have worshipers. Why did he send Jesus? So he'd have worshipers. Why do we go on mission? So that God has worshipers. Okay? That's just abundantly clear. And what's interesting is they're in this garden temple where they're worshiping. They're kicked out because of their sin. God brings them back. They build this tabernacle and then temple where God's glory is residing and they're worshiping. Then Jesus comes, and what does John tell us? At John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, which is the Greek word tabernacled, among us. What does Jesus become among us? The temple of God. The presence of the Holy God. That's why in Matthew we're calling him Emmanuel, God with us. Right? And then from there, last step. From there, Jesus not only is the temple of God, but then he builds his people into a holy temple. We're called by Paul, what? The temple of God. We're being built, Ephesians 2, 11 and following, in there's one new man, there's, the ethnic distinctions have been erased. There's one new man in Christ being built into a holy temple to the Lord. And then when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, what do you have there? Anybody know? You're back in the garden temple in the new heavens and new earth. The tree of life. Presence. That, that, that's being carried across. Now I'm going to get back to that with my eighth supposition next week or proposition next week as I walk through some more of the implications to corporate worship. But hopefully that's helpful as we're starting to walk through that. I thought I'd get through all 13 today. I'm always dreaming when I come up with those ideas. Let me pray. Father, thanks for, um, thanks for your kindness to us in Christ. The fact that you have created us to be worshipers of you. That you sent your son as the one true worshiper who has paid the penalty deserved by us because of our exchanging the truth of God for a lie. We're thankful that he has and that um, we are saved in him and brought back into the blessing of being your worshipers and making your worship known around the earth. We pray that we'd be faithful to that. Um, the times and place, places and among the people where you've placed us and Father that, um, that we'd be faithful in that not only with our friends and co-workers and family and neighbors but that we would be faithful in making your son known bringing his worship um, around the earth by raising up and supporting those who go um, to unreached peoples. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.